Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Arthur Snell. Prince Harry wrote in his book, Spare, that he had likely killed 25 Taliban fighters while serving in Afghanistan in the British military. After a media storm, he claimed that he'd gone public about this in order to reduce veteran suicide. And the issue of combat veterans' trauma and the long-term effects of their service is a live one in British society, and especially after the wars in Afghanistan and before that Iraq. To discuss this issue, I'm delighted to be joined today by British Army veteran and defence commentator Louise Jones, who, it's also worth mentioning, is an active Labour Party member. Louise, welcome. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Louise, briefly, just to help listeners understand your context, what was your own military experience? So I was an officer in the intelligence corps for about seven years from 2013 and then I left in 2020 and during that time I served abroad in Afghanistan and a few other places around the Middle East uh, with a variety of uh, different arms of the army. And you made some public comments, I think it was on uh, uh, BBC Question Time, around the time of withdrawal from Afghanistan. Would you like to sort of rehearse those for, for, for the listeners who haven't seen them? Yeah, so this was a special edition of the programme that the producers had put on following the um, uh, events in Kabul with the the final withdrawal of of British troops there and and the Taliban takeover. And um, I ended up, I think, being the only veteran in the audience. And I think that is a very important voice that that needed to be heard on on that topic of conversation. So it was quite a distressing time, I think, for various reasons. One is that obviously I still had friends that were serving out there. And, you know, from my perspective, there were some alarming messages coming as, as to, to whether or not they were prepared for the uh, withdrawal and the evacuation. Um, but also, like pretty much um, everybody that served in the armed forces and has had experience with Afghanistan, you know, it's a country that I care deeply about, we all care deeply about. It was quite easy to see that there was going to be very, very difficult times ahead for Afghanistan. And I think we've seen that since um, with some very distressing reports of widespread um, food shortages, uh, healthcare shortages, some appalling treatment of women. And then I think as well, what has proven to be an even bigger disappointment since then has been our treatment of those Afghans that we served with, either directly as interpreters or in the Afghan Defence Forces. You know, it's difficult to divorce yourself entirely from that. So, you know, it was a time of very heightened emotions. And I think for me in particular, I was quite angry because I felt like a lot of the problems could have been avoided um, if we'd made different decisions, which which frankly were, were known about at the time of these decisions being made. Yeah. And I wanted to start with Afghanistan because it's at the heart of what Prince Harry mentioned and the subsequent uh, media storm. Um, He said that he had probably killed 25 Taliban fighters. And this led some people to say that it was it was very unwise of him to mention that, that it 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 could increase the risk to him and his family, but also increase the sense of sort of enmity that that would exist between Britain and Afghanistan. Others, of course, supported him and said that this is the reality of military service, that, you know, a lot of civilians don't like to confront that reality. What what were your thoughts on on Prince Harry's disclosure and and whether or not it it was a good or bad thing to have done? So I think we wouldn't have seen the uproar that we saw if the comments he'd made 
uh, had been presented in full context from the very beginning. You know, I think when I initially heard it, it did sound a bit odd that Prince Harry had seemed to just sort of randomly say, you know, oh, I've killed 25 people. And I think, you know, as, it's not the usual way to talk about it as a veteran. That's completely true. But then, you know, when the wider book was released and we could see the context for his comments, um, it was clear that he was taking the, the book chapter in a certain direction. He was having a conversation and I, you know, I don't think we should be shy about the fact that one of the military's aims is to close with and kill the enemy. That's what they do. And in the UK, they do that at the behest of a democratically elected government, i.e. the government that we've elected to make these decisions for us. I do believe very strongly that when we cast a vote as, as citizens of this country, that we are putting politicians in place that we can trust to make those decisions about whether we do want to send our military abroad uh, to, to fulfil that function. There's no point being squeamish about it. It's it's unfortunately the, the way of the world that we live in. Now, Prince Harry, um, and I, I think it is important that uh, people have honest and open conversations about their service. And I think Prince Harry is in a slightly unusual position is as an Apache pilot in that the actions of an Apache, they're, they're sort of recorded all the time. And it can be very clear what he has or has not done on a particular mission. And I think this sets... Uh, Apache pilots apart slightly from the infantry or artillery or the cavalry, where the picture on the ground is is a lot less clear. But, you know, every single person that served in Afghanistan would have seen patrol reports, intelligence reports that quite clearly say, yes, there was two enemy killed in action or three enemy wounded in action. You know, that's, that's a very common statistic to see um, whether or not you personally uh understand how many of that is due to your actions i think again depends on what role you're playing yeah it's an interesting point about the the helicopter both in terms of its its uh its role inflicting perhaps larger numbers of casualties but also the the fact that it's a recorded uh process but i want to talk a bit about the the mental health implications um Prince Harry, again, has been very public about his own mental health issues. I, I, I wouldn't say that they're necessarily solely related at all to his military service, but it is un, undeniably the case that there are many veterans who've suffered uh, s- severe mental health issues, and, and it is also the case that society isn't always very good at managing that. Now, so my first question on this is, is, is simply... Do you believe that this relates to that act of taking another human life, which obviously in almost any other walk of life is seen as, as a huge taboo, but as, as you've laid out there very clearly, it is part of the duty of military service? Or is is the men, mental health issue relating to veterans, relating to sort of wider issues to do with the stress of being in combat? So I think that's a really interesting point that you made about Prince Harry, because actually uh, a lot of mental health issues that veterans struggle with, I don't think can be divorced from other things that are going on in their lives as well. I think military service tends to to be a factor that can cause mental health problems. Um, For example, issues with housing or with personal health or with relationship breakdown, all of these issues will combine and then, you know, can be exacerbated by uh, service in the military. I think it's comparatively more unusual to say that the mental health problem is only caused by military service. Um, And I also think there can be a wide variety of experiences when you deploy on operations. I, I have seen people who have struggled uh, when they have gone on operational tours where they have not really done anything. It has 
the uh, the support that they've been providing um, has not been, shall we say, kinetic at all. And actually, they've struggled with um, the mental stresses that come from, you know, being deployed in an austere environment with a lot of restrictions on what you can and can't do, and perhaps not necessarily having that much to do during the day. And actually, they found that very difficult. So I think there's a wide range of experiences that that soldiers and servicemen of any of the branches have, have got to struggle with, and not necessarily from kinetic firefights, which actually are very rare. Certainly since the end of combat operations in Afghanistan, um, kinetic operations have, have been very rare. The vast majority of service personnel will not have fired a weapon in anger at all. Um, but then we still see mental health issues. And I think it's important to, to understand what is causing that, you know, just beyond the obvious. Yeah. Now, wh- one of the things that, that came out at the time of the Afghan withdrawal was the sense that the, the failure of that operation, that that in itself would have a mental health impact. But something that I observed, and, and as you know, Louise, I, I spent time in Afghanistan uh, as a civilian, of course, um, but is that the what seems to me the thing that is most powerful in any successful military force is the esprit de corps. It's, it's the people looking after their buddies. It is not believing in some big higher purpose that you know has been delivered through a speech given by a politician. So I was interested in this idea that in spite of that, the, the strategic failure, that if you like, the political failure had a mental health impact. Well, what's your view of that? So I think that's um, a very fair point. And I, I've seen a very common way to express a, uh, the reaction to events in Afghanistan, which is that um, a lot of people still found their meaning from their military service from, you know, basically the tactical environment, uh, you know, what they were and were able to do with their team and the, and the small wins and losses that they took together as a team. And the, and the wider context for them um, hasn't really changed how they how they feel about things. But then I also think it's interesting to note, referring to a different conflict, the Korean War back in the early 50s, um, which was another war which wasn't necessarily one that we celebrate, you know, the outcome of today. And I think it was quite common across recorded experiences for veterans who'd served in that war that they found it quite difficult, that the almost silence about speaking about that war, they found that quite difficult. Um, when they were contextualizing their own experiences. And I worry with Afghanistan because it, we really do not speak about it now, particularly following the war, the events in Ukraine, but certainly also before that. I do wonder if uh, further down the line, we might see ourselves having more of the conversations that I feel that we have seen from the Korean War veterans. Louise, there is science at the heart of a lot of this in the terms of the, the medical science of understanding and diagnosing PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And of course, many of us may have grown up reading about World War I veterans having something called shell shock, which was a sort of not very well understood version of, of what is now seen and diagnosed as PTSD. What's your sense of how good the British military is now in the 2020s at identifying, diagnosing and managing those medical conditions. Whenever 
everything is going to plan, the uh, British Army and wider military can actually be very, very good uh, at understanding how to identify and treat mental health conditions. I think that's very clear. I think if you were deploying as part of a wider group, a company or a battle group, there's a very clear pathway to um, ensuring mental health resilience, both pre and post tour. Um, there is a lot of education, particularly in command chains, about mental health. And then the defence medical services are also very uh, experienced in, in treating these. I think where the British military starts to struggle is when things don't start to fit into those neat boxes where you've deployed as part of a, a battle group and you don't have that wider pathway, both pre and post tour. What was very common when I was serving is that people were going out in ones and twos to join an operation and the, the team that they'd be working with would be out there when they got there and would be you know, replaced during their tour. And then when they returned from that tour, they would often go on to a completely different unit than the one that they deployed with right so if you went on tour and you um, experienced something that you found difficult to deal with and came back from tour the unit that you joined um, would find it a lot harder I think to identify if you were struggling because they would have had no idea what you were like before you went on tour you know a lot a a lot of experience of those who've had mental health difficulties is that they have often felt that perhaps they were the they were often the last person to realize that what they needed was some serious help now, if the people around you don't necessarily know you as well, they're not going to be able to identify the issues either. So I think that's quite a key vulnerability that I felt like the, the army hadn't adapted. It still believes that the way people go on tour is as a battle group, whereas in reality, it's as in, in, in this ones and twos structure, as I've already outlined. So for me, I found that quite concerning. Yeah, and, and it's a well-worn cliche, but I think it's very true. The, the soldier saying, you don't know what it was like. But but that's in effect what you're describing, that, that somebody who was not deployed as part of a large group, um, finding themselves surrounded by people who really can't understand what their experiences were. Yeah, precisely. And and also, for example, a big exception, actually, is those who worked in my line of work in, in intelligence, uh, where you aren't necessarily seeing things uh, face-to-face, but you can be exposed to a lot of distressing imagery, video, yeah. things like that. Um, and that's also true. Now we have drone pilots and the whole you know, ecosystem around drone pilots is that um, there can be quite a lot of distressing material viewed, even though technically you're in relatively you know, relative safe and comfort. And then when you come back from those tours, however, and you go into a new command chain, they often have absolutely no idea whether you've basically just been doing a standard job just deployed uh, or if you've actually had quite a lot of challenges. You know, they they have no real idea yeah when you 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 mentioned a point earlier which i wanted to come back to which is this issue that of course somebody's mental health challenges and and this would be relevant to a someone serving in a military or in any other walk of life can't be put down to one individual thing and and you know of course there'll be a whole range of factors now this rubs up against a contemporary political and sort of governance crisis around the british military and and this is particularly seen in things such as soldiers' housing, such as uh, units being amalgamated or cut because of defence cuts and so on. Um, So how do you think uh, current defence policy is exacerbating those uh, more direct challenges faced by soldiers in, in, uh, in the line of duty? 
Oh, hugely. You know, your mental health is built on a firm foundation, right, which is based on your living standards, where you live, uh, the time that you spend with friends and family, um, you know, things like physical activity, what you're what you're eating, you know, there's this whole raft of things which are uh, important to, you know, give you resilience. And when uh, you're living in housing uh, where there's no hot water or there's damp issues, um, you know, that that's hugely challenging, particularly where I think a lot of service people can feel quite a lot of guilt that the reason why they're in that house and why their, you know, family members are in that house is because of the decisions that you have taken. So I think there can often be a lot of guilt associated with that. Um, and so the British Army in particular, I would say, is not a happy place at the moment mostly because due to cuts to personnel, both um, that have been done deliberately in the past decade or so, and also I think just to, to, to do with chronic undermanning, is that the tempo that most people in the British Army are feeling at the moment is very, very high. You know, very long days are common. It's a very, very challenging time to be a member of, of the military. Louise, I know that you're active in, in the Labour Party, um, and this is ultimately a highly political issue, the, the army, as you've explained, has been served of resources. It affects housing. It, it affects the workload. It, it affects the, the number of soldiers we can actually deploy in the field. But the British economy is, is not currently very well placed to rapidly expand its defence spending. What's your take on what we should be doing differently as a country in, in the defence field? So in, in, in some ways, actually, this isn't particularly party political because the Conservative Secretary of State Ben Wallace has been very critical of the uh, some of the past policies that have led the British military to, to where it is now actually and you know I think some of the the biggest criticisms of, of current Tory policy seems to have come from their own ministerial office holders but you know, I, I think it's a really valid point about the huge pressures that are on the uh, government budget at the moment. And you certainly won't catch me saying that we should be taking money away from from health or or, or many of the other issues, such as education, to, to put that into defence without a really strong case for it. But then at the same time, I think we can sometimes get bogged down with talking about you know whether we need to just give more money and and in, in some ways you know the, the conversation about about health is very similar to, to defense you know it's about whether or not we just pile more money into it and actually when when I was working in, in several different places in defense what seemed clear to me is that you could make a lot of reforms that would massively improve productivity without needing to spend an extra penny the MOD is notorious for wasting cash whether that's on very expensive equipment procurement programs such as the uh, Ajax, which is, I guess you call it a light tank, um, which uh, is a program that is now, I believe, six years overrunning, uh, hasn't delivered a single operational vehicle and is costing to the tune of five billion pounds. Now, how can you turn around and justify giving the MOD more money when they can't spend the billions that they've got already in a sensible and accountable manner? So, you know, there's huge reforms that need to be made to, to the way MOD and the army does business, I believe, before you could be able to give an injection of cash and know that it's going to deliver what you want it to deliver. And I think, you know, that there's no other way to run a budget other than that. Yeah. I mean, I suppose... Um... The sort of playing devil's advocate, one could say that successive governments have identified that challenge, you know, and, and particularly MOD procurement. You know, you, you gave the case study of Ajax, which is, you know, 
really disgraceful. And yet we don't seem as a country very good at getting on top of these issues, uh, you know, whoever's in power. But to, to try and get back to the the sort of issue of, of welfare of individual soldiers, is there more that needs to be done there? I mean, there's talk about the military covenant, but in a way that actually isn't something you can find written down anywhere or it doesn't appear to be a standard to which the government is held. Which should How could we do that better? So I think, you know... <laughs> There is a minimum level that we need to be providing to service personnel because we do ask them to make huge sacrifices, both just in normal jogging, right? You know, the the toll it takes on their own lives and their families' lives, as well as what potentially we could ask them to do. And, you know, there should, there often is in like contracts with, with suppliers for housing, things like that. There are minimum service levels and things like that. They're just often worded in, in such a terrible way that they can be difficult to enforce. And so the problem with, I think, having a military covenant is that it's all very well, you know, writing something down. It's what are the mechanisms to deliver that? And I, I think it does kind of circle back to whether the MOD is fit for purpose to be able to enforce something when it's written down. Um, and I, I also think that um, with the budgetary pressures that we've got that are being applied mostly from equipment procurement programs, this is what is at the end result means that the MOD, in order to fund these huge price increases, is having to take money from where it can. So where do they always turn? It's, it's to do things like, for example, give service personnel um, I think it was a pay rise of less than 3%, I think, last year, which when you look at the, the average rate of inflation is, is considerably below inflation. So the MOD is sort of forced into making decisions where it has to give a, a very, very small pay rise uh, because of its malfunctions elsewhere. I, I want to finish with, with a final question, which I suppose is, is a bit reflective. Um, we, we talked at the beginning about Afghanistan and about uh, your your own feelings at, at the time of the withdrawal. And when you find yourself talking to former comrades in arms, how do you reflect on those years? Do you feel that it was it was wasted effort? Or do, or do you have a slightly more sort of nuanced view? I think often it's, it's sort of directly related to current activity or future activity. So it tends to be mentioned in the context of, so for example, the UK um, recently, up until recently, was supporting a UN operation in Mali. And uh, that operation was quite controversial amongst, you know, serving personnel and, and veterans because it had all the hallmarks of some of the mistakes that we'd made in Afghanistan, right? Now, yeah. I think... Many people that had, you know, that touched that operation had their minds blown that, that we were that we were doing things like that. You know, why why on earth have we not learned such lessons? And so, and again, you come to things like Ukraine, which is obviously a very different operation again. Um, and the, you know, then it's now put in the context of well, we spent so long you know, giving life support to an operation that we maybe shouldn't have in Afghanistan. And, and meanwhile, we'd forgotten how to deal with uh, high intensity warfare with a near peer enemy, uh, which I think has caught us all by surprise in the, in the last 12 months of just the skills, the tactics, and frankly, the industrial power needed to uh, produce things like ammunition and vehicle replacements. Um, so Afghanistan has been given sort of a new lease of criticism, if you like, because it took us away from what you could argue should have been the main focus of the British Army, which is preparation for high intensity warfare with a near peer enemy. 
Louise, uh, thank you so much for sharing your insights and experience with us today. Yeah, no, of course. Listeners, thank you for joining us. And if you enjoy the podcast, remember you can support us on Patreon from just £3 a month. You'll be supporting us to make shows like Bunker, Oh God, What Now? and the new series of My Doomsday Watch. Bunker was presented by Arthur Snell. Lead producer is Jacob Jarvis, group editor Andrew Harrison, audio production by me, Robin Lieber, and the theme tune is by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Podmasters.